Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Today's episode is brought to you by Basecap. So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of, of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required and you can cancel at any time. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have a very exciting founder today from Startup Nation. So uh, again, you know, we're going to be talking about startups that worked out, startups that didn't work so well, and also the rocket ship that he has embarked on. So, you know, building, financing, scaling, you know, the drill. Uh, and obviously in this last uh, company, raising a series A, you know, of 50 million in just five months. So anyways, let's give it a go here. Let's, let's welcome our guest today. And his name is, let's see if I get it right. Sajiv Ofek, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Alejandro. You got it almost right. It's a give, but close enough. <laughs> see, see, I knew it. You know, sometimes the Spanglish kicks in. So hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, you forgive me for the Spanglish kicking. So, Sagiv, why don't we do a little of a walk through memory lane? Uh, and you know, your story is remarkable, and I'm sure that we're going to be inspiring a lot of people that are tuning in. Uh, but in this case, I mean, you're from Israel, and you know, in Israel, startup nation. You know, there is a, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are tuning in now that would love to hear, you know, about your life growing up and, and for you to give us a little of a walk through memory lane. So how was life growing up there in Israel? It actually was pretty uh, awesome, I have to say. I, born and raised in Israel. Um, I grew up to what I want to say a typical childhood, but after moving to the U.S., I realized that there is not such a thing of typical childhood because childhood in different countries might be very different. But I'll say as a kid, I had a lot of freedom to roam around, do whatever I want, fail. Uh, hurt myself a lot of times, um, but overall I was super happy to to grow there. And then in general, I'll say I, I learned a lot, um, or at least most of my personality was shaped on on my childhood there. Now, most of the people that they, that I've had on the show from Israel, you know, obviously there the military is mandatory, so you guys can escape eh, doing your 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 stint there. But in 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 this case, I mean, most of the people that I've had on the show are people that. In essence, you know, went to their intelligence team, cyber security team, or whatever that is. Uh, but in your case, it was combat. So uh, tell us about the combat unit. What I mean, were you were you like punching people there, or what was the combat unit all about? <laughs> well, uh, I want to say I was either crazy, crazy, or lucky enough to 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 get uh, accepted to a kind of special forces unit. So that's not a typical route for 
uh, kind of start, startup founder who comes from Israel originally, usually, like you mentioned, they, they go to all those intelligent units or technical units. Uh, I do think you can learn a lot and, and, and shape your, your future or your personality going to those um, tough combat units because you, you really, by design, face a lot of really hard situations in life that teach you a lot about what is important, what is not, help build character. Um, I was also lucky enough to be an officer. So um, going to the kind of office, of course, and, and kind of leading other people gives you a lot of experience of like leadership. And leadership in, you'll be surprised, but leadership in army might be very, very similar to leadership in, in startups or other environments as well. How, how is that the case? So, so you, you learn how to work with people, right? You learn how to motivate people. You learn how to make people do things that they, they don't always want to do, right? How you, like you, you learn how to be visionary and how to have people marching after you, whatever you want to march it towards. And this, this applies for business, this applies for army, this applies for, for a lot of other things. But I think what I learned the most is the power of a team. Uh, it can be a really small team, but this small team can accomplish a lot of great things in the future. Um, and I know, especially for, for like American corporations, like bigger is always better. But I think what I learned is not, it's not always the case. You can actually accomplish more with less people as long as the people are super motivated and super talented. Now, in your case, you know, like you obviously didn't go to one of those special units, you know, on the intelligence or, or more than the techie side. But you ended up on the, on the, on the techie side of things because you, you got your computer science degree. So, so how do you? You know, realize, hey, you know, I want to, I want to take this route. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I was always a nerd, even when I was in the army. <laughs> uh, I always drew to computers. Uh, I think since I got my my last computer when I was like five, and like I, I kind of fell in love with with what you can accomplish using kind of technology. So uh, for for me, it was a no brainer that after I finished with the army, I go back to to computers and and high tech because that was my my passion. So for you. After getting the uh, the degree, you did a couple of stints as a software engineer, uh, really learning the ropes. Uh, right before you actually went at it with your with your first startup, which was Home Dine. Now, Home Dine, you know, was quite the experience. You know, one of the as they say, you know, you don't learn as much from your successes, right? You do learn a lot when you fall, right? And and Home Dine, although a great you know opportunity, it was not the desirable outcome that you had hoped for. So. What happened with Home Dine? How do you realize, hey, I'm going to go start this thing? And, and what were you guys doing there? And, and what, what were the events that unfolded? Yeah, so believe it or not, Home Dine started as a hackathon project. Uh, we won like a local hackathon project in Tel Aviv. And I fell in love with the idea and the potential. So I decided to actually start a company around it. Uh, we got funding, at least seed funding, and, and actually moved to the, to, to the U.S., to Silicon Valley. To kind of scale the company and, and start like hopefully make this idea big and and i agree with you you actually learn a lot from failure and i learned like the things that you want to do and the things that you don't want to do uh i learned a lot from from my experience in home dine uh, eventually the startup didn't make it um, we had to shut it down but uh, i think one of the main takeaways that i had is um and, and i think one of the investors that i had back in the days told me that startup fails not when they run out of money, startup fail when the the founder kind of lose interest or <laughs> or believe it they cannot make it, and and I really felt it. Like in in one case when when I was managing the startup and we still have some money in the bank, but I, I just I didn't see it going anywhere and and I lost hope. And I think once the the founder kind of lose hope, uh, everything else will will just fall apart soon after. So I decided to shut everything down and and 
return the, the small amount of money that we still had in, uh, in the bank. And another thing that I realized is that whatever you choose, you have to choose something that you will be passionate about, right? Um, otherwise, you'll give up and you'll give up very fast. Uh, when things right. get hard, and in every company, things get hard in some point. No matter how much money you have in bank, no matter you're, if you're a Series B or or all the way to IPO, um, things gets hard in some point. And if you don't have the conviction, if you don't have the passion for whatever you're doing, you'll just give give up, right? So no matter as a founder, no matter what idea you decide to do, keep in mind that you're probably going to do it for the next few years. Uh, so you better like really be motivated to to work in this domain, otherwise. Uh, you'll give up very, very easily. Got it. I mean, obviously there, you know, still you guys got some good features, no? like on big media outlets. So, so I mean, you know, typically it's interesting because when you think that you've, you've been featured on, on these big media blogs, you feel like you've made it. And then you realize not so fast, right, kind of thing. So I guess for you, at what point do you realize? I mean, first and foremost, I mean, what was the business model of HomeDine? How, how did you guys make money? Yeah, home dine back in the days was you can think about it as kind of Airbnb for meals. So everybody can open a home restaurant, invite people over and charge money for it. So you can you can open your own restaurant out of your home. Um, had so many issues with that, anything from legal to um, kind of consumer behavior, especially in the U.S. market, convincing people to kind of go to random people's houses was not in the culture. That's also something that was really different between the Israeli culture where it used to be very common to host people over at their at your home, even stranger, versus the U.S. market that it's like it's a big no-no to go to some random person's house and then eat kind of random dinner with them. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I learned a lot about different cultures, uh, different consumer behaviors. Um, but, yeah, the idea was pretty much Airbnb for meals. So then in this case, I mean, at what point do you realize, hey, this is not working out? Because, I mean, you did spend two years of your life on this thing. Yeah, I, I think when I, I realized that I tried to convince people to use it and tell them why it's good for them to use it, um, at the beginning, you, you just you just grind, right? It's it's a, all right, it's it's part of being a hustler. It's bar, part of being an entrepreneur. You have to teach the market. You have to teach people how to use your product. But I think I got so many pushbacks from from potential customers or potential users. It's like, in some point, I was like, all right, like if I get so many pushbacks, maybe I'm seeing it wrong versus the customer seeing it wrong, right? It's really hard to educate markets, especially new markets. Um, if you make it, it's it can be amazing, right? Like new products that educate market can create a whole new revenue stream. But I'll say ninety nine percent of the times, you actually <laughs> you, you you will hit some roadblock, you'll hit some wall, and it's really hard to kind of overcome that. So, at what point do you realize, hey, you know, I think I'm going to have to shut this thing down? Yeah, I, th I think once I start seeing like a pattern of me trying to convince users to use the product over and over and over again, it's like, all right, that's that's just too much. Like if, if I need to really battle with potential customers and users and explain them why they should use it, uh, maybe there is no product market fit. So I didn't see enough growth. I didn't see enough conversion in, in the user um, that just kind of justify continuing and, and investing in it. Now, in your case, once uh, you shut this thing down, I mean, obviously that's a pretty humbling you know, experience, you know, I'm sure. But, you know, in this case for you, you know, it was time to turn page. So what happened next? Yeah. So next I actually joined an existing uh, startup out of New York. They already were up and running. I joined as a founding member. Um, that was a technical kind of startup that um, in that regard, I, I want to say I was much, much more lucky because we had a positive outcome and we were able to, to sell the company pretty much a year after I joined, a year or two after I joined. 
and that was Brewster. So with Brewster, you know, when you're uh, going through the experience of doing the full cycle, what does that look like? Because, I mean, here you were a founding, you know, team member, you know, pretty early, you know, in the journey of this company, and you were able to really get to see what a successful and positive outcome looks like. What kind of visibility that, did that give you? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think one of the things that I enjoy seeing is like how easy is there, how easier it is not to battle with your users or try to convince them to, to use it, right? Like it's it, it, it either they use it or not. And if they use it, there is a potential product market fit. And it's always exciting to see how people actually use your product and enjoy using it. So for me, that was a great kind of outcome and like an eye opening of like, hey, like this is how this is how potential product market fit can look like. This is how like if you build it right and people actually using it, like it's actually very exciting to work on. It. And what is product market fit in your eyes? Yeah, so um, I would say that there was um, I forgot who said it, but there is a really good uh, example that product market fit is like when when once you have it, you know that you have it. If you're asking if you have a product market fit, you probably don't have it. Um, and I would say that if you're like drowning from demand and people pull you over for so many different uh, places and you have so many users who want that and keep using it and you just cannot keep up with the request that you're getting, that's definitely a product market fit. If from the other hand, you spend most of your time on outbound or try to convince people to use your product, you should maybe step back for a second and ask yourself if you have this product market fit. Um, because a good product market fit, you'll be just surrounded by inbound requests and, and kind of ask to use your product. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in your case too, I mean, especially from 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 the way that, that you share, you know, uh, certain things, I can I can see that you read a lot. You know, I can see, you know, from some of those comments, you know, which I think that they're right on, you know, I can see that you've read a lot. And, and I guess as a founder, it's important to really understand, you know, your go-to places for information, right? Because you need to keep yourself, you know, developing at the same speed as, as the company. So I guess in your, in your, on your end, you know, as a founder and, and being involved with startups, 
what would you say have been your go-to places to really develop yourself as a as a founder too? Yeah, so I mean, reading is definitely an important skill. In, in my case, it's less reading, more listening. <laughs> I mean, I read books by listening to them. Uh, I'm a huge huge fan of kind of audiobooks. Uh, every time that either I go to gym or just wash dishes, uh, I have like a book in, in the background that I'm listening to. Um, it's definitely a, a great source. Um, I, I know it's like, it's a kind of hand wavy answer, but a lot of time, the best source is experience, right? Like no matter how much you will read about it, just by experiencing things, and especially by failing, you will learn so many things, right? Like after Brewster and after um, Homedine, I got so many requests to join so many different companies. In a way, I saw myself as a potential VC because I know already how VCs evaluate companies. I know what will work, what will not work. And as a founder who failed so many times, I actually can kind of identify failure points. So I was so skeptical, pretty much for 99% of the people who came to me with, hey, do you want to join me for this startup? Or do you want to join, or you want to start this idea? Like, um, in, in a way, I maybe I, I pivoted too much to the, to the kind of, negative side and, and was very pessimistic for every idea. But I think I learned the hard way of when to say no and what to say no to, because by failing, you, you actually experience some patterns that you can identify in the future and, and learn how to avoid them. And that's actually one of the things that led me to, to LibLab in the way, but I guess we'll get, we'll get there. We're getting right, right into it. So, so after Brewster, actually, you joined Facebook and you, know, you did Facebook with Facebook Stories, then Amazon. Now, this is interesting because here you go from doing startups to doing bigger companies and now to doing startups again. So what would you say, you know, is really the difference, you know, of working at a big company versus now running your own? And then what was your takeaway from seeing those really big companies, super successful companies? I mean, two of the most successful companies out there right now to then go and start your own with those learnings. Yeah, so after Brewster, even though it was a successful outcome, it was not like amazing successful outcome, right? It was not like what I want to say, fuck you money or something like that. <laughs> so, okay. So it, it was it was a nice kind of exit, but not something that I, I can retire on, right? And I think right. one of the things that I learned is that I did startups pretty much all of my life. And I have no idea how a big company operates, right? Like I have no idea how to scale a company. Even as a manager, I don't know how to scale big teams. So that kind of inspires, inspired me to, to kind of try to copy from the best companies in the world. And, and that's why I decided to join Facebook and Amazon, just to see like how top tier companies operate, right? Anything from processes to, to management, to, to hiring, to firing, and, and, and everything in between. I joined those companies as a manager because I, I want to see how they operate, how they hire people, how they develop people. So can I, I can, I can, pretty much copy the, the thing that I think would be super relevant for me. So when I go back to startups, because the, the goal for me was always to start another company and hopefully the, the next company will be much bigger uh, success. Um, but I, I, I didn't have enough tools. And so I, I decided to join the best companies in the world to, to, to kind of get the tools, right? The tool set for me as a manager, the tool set for me as, as an entrepreneur, as, as, a, as a founder. Uh, so when I go back to the startup world, I'll, I'll, I'll have this experience of like, how to manage multiple teams, how to manage 100 people, how to scale, what is process, how like HR kind of processes look like. Uh, because again, coming from for a small startup, you just, you don't know how to do it. But it was five years and five long years because I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. So during those five years, I mean, at what point do you realize, I think I'm ready for 
my next contract? I think I think after a year, <laughs> to be honest. Some people can find themselves in big companies pretty much for the rest of their life. And, 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 and it's good for them. I mean, some people enjoy big companies, right? The corporate America and um, uh, the, the cushy kind of cushy position that you're going to have, a uh, golden cage or however you want to call it. Uh, for me, I think after a year or so, I kind of learned most of, of the practices, but I just, I didn't feel that I have good enough idea or good enough reason to to leave this cushy position and start something on my own. And for me, it all clicked after my tenure in Amazon where when I, I saw a huge opportunity while I was actually in AWS and I realized how much of opportunities we have around the domain of kind of helping companies to, to scale their SDKs or to generate SDKs with their APIs. Uh, because this is what I did internally for AWS as a manager, and I decided to do it as a kind of standalone company for the rest of the for the rest of the world, pretty much. So, what was the uh, experience of uh, you know going at it on your own and then figuring out how you surround yourself by others? Well, you get culture shock at the beginning, right? Because you don't have all the kind of the luxury of people around you and the paycheck every month at the beginning. You just you go to the unknown, right? You start everything from the ground up. Even to hire people, like uh, I'll say, it's much easier to hire on your Facebook or, or in your Amazon than when you hire as a no-name new startup, right? Because at the end of the day, you compete with all those big companies. So how how you differentiate yourself? How do you attract talent? How how like why should a person who join you and not Facebook, for instance, right? Especially when you pay less than Facebook. Um, so for me, like the, the humbling experience again was like the grind of finding top talent, but then convince them to join you. Um, especially when you're just getting started and nobody heard about you. And and in this case, LibLab, you know, what, what, what ended up being the business model of LibLab? Yeah, so in LibLab, it's very simple. We call it SDK as a service. It's a SaaS company that helps companies to generate SDKs for their APIs. So if you have an API, no matter what your API is about, and you want to make it more accessible, safer, better um, to your developers, we help you generate SDKs in multiple languages at the same time with pretty much zero effort for you as a company. Uh, so you can offer your developers SDKs in all languages according to best practices and maintain those SDKs um, with zero effort. So we help companies to, to make SDKs for their APIs. And then on the financing, it has been pretty wild. So how much capital have you guys raised to date and what has been the, uh, you know, the, the financing cycles like? Yeah, so uh, the company started, believe it or not, January this year. <laughs> so the company is, what, seven months old, give or take. And so far, we raised $50 million in two rounds, Series A and, and, um, and Seed Round. The, the funding was really fast. And I, I don't think it's because my nice, pretty blue eyes, uh, mostly because I don't have blue eyes. <laughs> I think it was just uh, <laughs> when, going back to the, the product market fit uh, question, I think we're solving a really, really large problem, right? Like our target audience is pretty much every company with an API. And the problem we're solving for them is helping them create SDKs for them. Um, so a huge market. Uh, obviously, we have um, we have the knowledge and the know-how how to do that because this is what they did in-house for AWS back in the days. So I think the combination of a large market, really painful problem to solve and hard to solve with the knowledge of how to solve it kind of led for for this kind of fast growth and and were allowed us to, to raise money in sh- such a short term. Now, your seed round, you did it in March, and your, and your seed round was about $8 million, And then your Series A, you did it in June, and that was about, you know, on the, on the closer end to 50, uh, 40, 42, I believe. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big jump. 
in like almost no time. I mean, typically you would raise money, you know, you would you would let the financing cycles go in between by at least 18 to 24 months. So in this case, why did you go at it right away? And why that massive jump from raising 8 million seed to raising a 42 million Series A in like just a few months? Yeah, it's a very good question. So I think I didn't look for funding uh, for the Series A. Like you mentioned, like we had enough funding for the next year or two at least to, to run with the product. Uh, but I think it was a combination of getting approached by really great investors that are, uh, I know a lot of investors say that they're a value add, but in my case, I really felt it, it's a value add, uh, both in terms of the, the portfolio companies that they invested or the domain that they are super involved with. Um, so when they approached me and we had this conversation, um, I, I realized it, it might be really, really good idea for the company to kind of join forces with those investors and, and decide to, to, to make the, the Series A a bit earlier and, and, and kind of scale even faster this way. And what's typically the thinking there? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of people, and you know, I speak with a lot of people that are always, that are always super concerned about dilution and, and just thinking about money just as money and maybe not as networks or what that money can actually bring you in terms of value-added uh, type, of, type of resources, either network or distribution or whatever that is. So in this case, how did you guys think about, you know, that aspect too of, of, of your, you know, equity, you know, and, and, and how would that, you know, perhaps take a little of a dilution? Yeah, so I'll step back for a second and maybe start by asking, what is your motivation as a founder, right? If your motivation as a founder is full control and owning everything, you might not want to raise from any investors, right? You might even have a kind of standalone side business or kind of lifestyle business that can support you for the rest of your life uh, and you will never need to, to fundraise at all, right? And it, this is actually good for a lot of people because they, they like this control, right? They don't want to report to anyone. They want to decide on their destiny kind of. And so if this is your motivation, I would say don't even think about the route of VC. Um, if your motivation is to build something great or something good uh, or big, right? And you don't really care about like how many people, uh, how much ownership you, you want to give for it, uh, then this is might might be a, a good good route you should choose. In that case, I would say there is a high caveat of who, who are the partners that you choose, right? Because uh, unlike founders, I want to say because founders can can split up and not work together. In this is the, it's the opposite. In this is whoever you join to your cup table will probably stay there forever. Um, so it's really, yeah. really important to to choose the right partner. So in my case, it was less about the need for the funding as much as how I was impressed with with the potential kind of investors that uh, I joined uh, with with to my cup table. So um, choosing the right, right right partner is a make or break for a lot of companies. I'm sure you heard a lot of kind of horror stories about VCs or founder kind of mismatch and and what happened then. So I did a lot yeah. of homework. Who are the VCs that I want to work with and um, what value they can actually add for LibLab. And I was really, really lucky to to identify the, the one that I wanted to work with. And so far, I have to say, I'm super, super impressed with the, the value add that they, they bring to the table. And why did you want to, to work with them? What, was, what were some of the, those check marks that were so important for you? Okay, so different VCs or investors bring different values. Um, for instance, I had amazing angels in my serious seed that provide even up to today, amazing, amazing value. Anything from like interviewing potential kind of um, um, 
members all the way to giving advice, all the way to open doors when, when you need. Um, so, so it depends what you need from them. Different investors bring different values. I have amazing angels uh, who, who brought this and uh, this value. I have amazing VCs who bring values with like processes and hiring and and uh, kind of um, teaching about product market fit and go to market and and scales and sales force and things like that. Um, because they have a large team that that can educate you about that. And there are some investors. That are super connected, anything from whatever potential kind of C level execs that you want to hire down the road. So I, I think different investors have different niche that they specialize in. But you as a founder, um, don't just raise from whoever can give you money. Make sure that you identify first what you want, what skill set you want to kind of to add to the table, and then find those investors who specialize in that. So in my case, I think recruiting was super helpful. Sales and go-to-market kind of knowledge was super helpful. Obviously, um, interviews and, and getting to know people, C-level execs was super helpful. And uh, I, I was really lucky to have kind of partners who can support me on all those um, topics. So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Lip Lab is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's funny, but for me, the vision is to to help developers be more productive. We're, we're a developer tools company, and for me, a developer should spend time on on the hard part and not the things that can be automated, right? And as developers, we always like to automate. And so, in an ideal world, what we want to have is things like anything from SDKs all the way to server side and API generation later um, should be auto generated by a machine. Should be auto generated by machine because it will save a lot of mistakes for writing um, bad code or writing um, security vulnerabilities or things like that. Uh, so developers can focus most of their time on the things that they need to focus on. Um, so things like SDKs, for instance, that is super important um, for any API that you write can be automated. Yes, it's really hard to do it, right? Yes, it's really hard to do it in a way that it doesn't look like a machine-generated code. But this is the problem that we're tackling because once we do that. Now, as a company, you can offer SDKs in so many different languages at the same time for your audience. So no matter if you come from C Sharp, Java, Python, JavaScript, and so on, you will have the tools that you need to integrate with this API with pretty much one or two lines of code instead of trying to reinvent the wheels every time. Obviously, now, you know, you're a few startups in. You know, you've had a, a tremendous amount of experience. You had the ups. You've had the downs. Imagine with all of that wealth of knowledge that you've been able to acquire, whether it's with experience or with reading, now with all those books that you're listening to as well, if you were to go into a time machine and go back in time and have a chat with that younger Sagif that was thinking about starting his first company, if you were able to have a sit down and, and give that younger Sagif one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, the advice that I'll give for myself is make sure that you want to do that for, for the next at least five to 10 years. Otherwise, don't go there, right? Like if, if you're looking for a small win, small hack win, you will give up too early. So whatever you choose to do next, no matter what it is, uh, no matter what business, what domain you want to you wanna focus on, make sure that you want to focus on it at least for the next five to 10 years, at least, if not even more, right? Because then it will ensure that you are super motivated about this domain, you're super passionate about it, and you want to spend most of your, your time, no matter if it's working hours or after working hours, trying to solve this problem. Otherwise, you will give up early. Otherwise, you, you will be demotivated when things don't go well. Uh, so no matter what you try to focus on, make sure that you're passionate about it. 
I love it. Now, Shagi, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm in LinkedIn. I'm in Twitter. Just look for Sagiv, S-A-G-I-V, Ofek, O-F-E-K, or go to LibLab, LibLab.com, and you'll find me there. Amazing. Well, Sagiv, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. It, it was a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.